I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me in the studio with his copy of When She Was Good, it's Andy Greenwald! Chris, this is a very special bonus episode of The Watch today because a couple crazy things happened on TV last night. Yeah. And prior to hour nine of the Oscars, I thought it was just going to be my main man from the, uh, the Americans ding dong coming out of his pants. <laughs> but no, uh, this is our special bonus episode. It's a snippet of my interview with Lena Dunham talking specifically about the third episode of the sixth season of Girls, American Bitch, that aired last night. And again, I really would have said that that was the most spectacular thing that aired last night until the Oscars went nuts. Right. So this is Andy talking with Lena Dunham specifically about, specifically about last night's episode of Girls. We'll have you the full episode, your full interview with Lena Dunham on Wednesday on the Watch Feed. But this is a great opportunity to hear a little bit more about what went into this episode. Obviously, a unique episode, a bottle episode, if you will. Did you guys talk um, about Rihanna flute? We talked about the flute. I'm, I'm not, not referring lie. to Matthew Reese's penis. <laughs> I'm actually talking about the flute. The that is what, Rihanna, that yeah. is what Carrie Russell calls it. <laughs> um, no, I, I, it was a great conversation about an episode that I think is one of the most impressive and artistic episodes of television this or any other year. So... Excited for you guys to check out this snippet. And if you're wondering why Andy and I didn't get a chance to talk about girls today, yeah. when you're listening to it, it's because we were so mind-melted by the Oscars that we have like a pretty expansive Oscars podcast that you can listen to. So today on the Watch Feed, me and Mandy, me and Mandy, me and Andy and Amanda talking about the Oscars right after the Oscars ended from our podcast last night, from our live show last night. And then Andy with his interview with Lena Dunham about American Bitch Wednesday. Andy's full interview with Lena Dunham about girls and everything else. And Thursday, we'll have a We just flood in the zone with the content. Let's do it. Lena Dunham, thank you for joining me. Andy Greenwald, it's an honor. I'm such a big fan of yours. I love thank your you. writing. And to be in this space with you is an honor. There are obviously many things to talk about, but I'm very excited to talk to you about the television show Girls. Oh, thank you. Um, for a number of reasons, one of which is we're going to be running this after um, the third episode of the sixth season uh, airs American Bitch. I think it's one of the greatest episodes of the show to date. One of that the more means... remarkable episodes I've seen in TV in a while. It means so much to me. So we're going to talk about it specifically, if you don't mind. I'd be honored. As I want to do, I do want to talk specifics about the third. I thought um, those two in particular, um, 602 and 603, I think are like two of the strongest episodes you've done on Thank the show. You. But particularly because they're incredibly strong in the two modes of the show as I as I like to segregate them, which is um, 603 is very much, as you said, the sort of the independent film. It is yeah. a contained, the TV yeah. word would be almost bubble episode, mm-hmm. but a completely contained story. And it, much like um, the Panic in Central Park and much like One Man's Trash, mm-hmm. two of my other favorite episodes, Thank you. seem to exist in their own artistic reality in a really wonderful way. Well, uh, the common theme with those episodes is that Jenny and Judd, I have a loose idea, mm-hmm. I kind of mention it to Jenny and Judd, and they say, go home and bring us a draft tomorrow. And I literally tomorrow. Yeah. And I go in with all three of those episodes. It involved getting into my bed with a heating pad and a bunch of green tea and just writing until it was done. And it doesn't mean it doesn't change. But the first draft is what Judd would call a vomit draft. Yeah, like yeah. it just comes out and I hand it to them and they sort of receive it on its own terms. And then we have lots of debates about the specifics and the group mind kicks in. But the first draft of the first draft, and these are really the three episodes that it happened with, was One Man's Trash, Panic in Central Park, and American Bitch, was that the first draft was this incredibly private, almost like live journal entry that I then took to the writer's room. Wow. Well, that, that's amazing to me. That's almost the opposite of what I expected you to say, because this episode, 
Um, just getting one's arms around it, I don't even know how to do it because, um, I mean, I, I, I wrote down, it's, it's an episode about privilege, victimhood, power, sex, Tumblr, all the major, <laughs> the major pillars of our existence today. Um, yeah. How, more specifically with this episode, um, what did you say to them the day before the vomit draft appeared? Like, what, what did you want to do, hopefully, and before you even began to try to, to, to gather all those things together into a coherent narrative? We had been talking a lot. I mean, obviously, Judd was very vocal about Bill Cosby and about sort of how Bill Cosby, the issue with Bill Cosby was bigger than Bill Cosby, which is it was a willful disregard on the part of Hollywood and a willful denial Mm -hmm. of the kind of abuse of power that has always been woven into legacy. Hollywood has always been incredibly liberal and, and often on the right side of history. And Hollywood has also allowed for insane human rights abuses that people sort of want to cast aside as mutually beneficial. But the amount of women who have been sort of broken by Mm -hmm. this system is really remarkable. And so we were talking a lot about that in the writer's room and a lot about that, but also a lot about the experiences that we've all had that aren't as cut and dry as what women experienced with Bill Cosby. You know, being drugged and raped is a very, very clear crime. We talked about the complexities of being a young woman, a young creative woman, and having your sort of um, excitement and passion um, fed upon Mm -hmm. by an older male figure who knows that they can get something back because of your interest in them and your interest in being seen and heard. And everyone in the writer's room, every woman in the writer's room seemed to have an experience with that, seemed to have an experience with, and I'm not saying this doesn't happen to guys. We hear plenty of stories about predatory older male producers or even women who have, you know, misused the casting couch. But Every woman in the story had, every woman in the writer's room had some story about a way that their young enthusiasm and desire to make work and desire to be acknowledged for their work had translated into some kind of misconduct from a powerful, from a guy who was in a position of power. I I was going to talk about the fundamental imbalance in these relationships as as expressed in the episode where Hannah says something about how you have the New York Times op-ed page at your disposal. And in these relationships, younger women, especially who have, you know, desire even before talent, the levers of power they have access to aren't as direct. But you just spoke to something that I think complicates it in a way that this episode complicates everything we're talking about, which is actors are incredibly vulnerable. Yeah. And you show up on set, especially someone else's set. You've never Mm -hmm. been before. Someone else's words. You know, I I can begin to empathize with anyone who shows up and has to suddenly be someone and be their true self in front of them. So to give that up in the way that he did, I think is... is, And he sort of spoke to the fact that like, there are truly men who don't want to engage in that kind of power play. Like what I really loved is that Matthew sat down with me. I mean, for those who've seen the episode, you know that it's about, it's a character trying to sort of defend himself from accusations of sexual misconduct who is very prickly, complicated, and it's really unclear where your allegiances Mm -hmm. should lie. But what I loved is that Matthew just sat down and was like, tell me everything this, tell me every story that you know that inspired you. Mm to write this. Mm-hmm. Tell me what you've experienced. Tell me how these men have dealt with you or dealt with your friends and then I'll do the work of figuring out why. Mm-hmm. Well, Hannah says something in the episode that is, uh, I was going to say, is like her, is a, is a very on, on-brand remark for the yeah. character, which is when she says she's sick of gray areas. Yeah. The episode which, exists in a gray area. That was actually a line Jenny Connor wrote, like speaking of how we work, is like, I wrote this episode in a fever dream, brought it to her, 
And she said, like, I think we need to really acknowledge that what's happening in this episode isn't a Bill Cosby situation. Mm -hmm. It isn't even a Roman Polanski situation. There is a painting of Woody Allen with a gun to his head in the background, which is very choice. I'm so happy you like it that actually I have to shout out my friend Teddy Blanks, who is a good friend of mine. He's a film director and a graphic designer. He designed the cover to my book and did the credits to Tiny Furniture and mm -hmm. all my early work. And um, he also scored Tiny Furniture. He's had that picture, which was painted by one of his, I believe, high school art teachers. <laughs> He's had it in his apartment forever. And we were figuring out what should exist in Chuck's apartment. Mm -hmm. And I texted Teddy and I was like, is it okay if I borrow your Woody Allen with a gun to his head picture? And he was like, I'd be honored. So we yeah, sent someone to pick it up. He filled out a little form. We returned it. And so now I think he's proud that his picture, his painting has such prominent placement. It, it, it's it's perfect. I mean, as a, as a Woody Allen fan who has to exist in the world yeah. that, that loves movies, it's like, I thank you for yes. putting that and, and for the episode in general, because well, it's none of this is easy. No. And I think that so when I brought the episode to Jenny, she was like, we have to acknowledge that this episode is about a gray area. And she's and she came up with this monologue for Hannah, like, I'm fucking sick of gray areas. Yeah. Why do they have to exist? And actually, um, before we came on, got on the mics here, I was telling you a story about a teacher who was inappropriate with me mm -hmm. in fifth grade. And that story exists in, in the, the show. Yeah. In the show. And you, you've given Matthew this part to, to play where it, it's all performance, but that doesn't mean it's not genuine. And that's what's no. really compelling about his performance and the way you wrote the character because everything is staged, you know, from, and, and he's called on it, you know, the photo of Toni Morrison um, to the call that he gets uh, from his ex wife. Um, to another thing that you acknowledge really well in the episode, which is the apartment's gorgeous. My God, it was so, we shot in this building. You know, I grew up downtown and to me, anything above 14th Street was like going to Disney World. Yeah. Like, I mean, we would go up there to go to the museum. Sure. But besides that, I had no relationship to, we didn't shop at department stores up there. We didn't go you up didn't to You didn't go to Zabar's? We didn't go to Zabar's. We didn't go wow. to Barney Greengrass. Wow. It wasn't until I became like an adult with my own fancy adult friends that I was ever taken to any of those right. places. We would go, we went to the Museum of Metropolitan Art every Sunday. My parents, there was a two-year period in which they decided like, we don't go to church, we don't, don't go to temple, we go to the museum every Sunday. That's nice. And then my my younger sibling and I staged a revolution and we're no longer required to go. But, <laughs> to any of it, right. But, so to me, everything up there is Fantasia. And I had initially written it as like a West Village kind of mm -hmm. brownstone. And then I was like, we want it to feel really different than Patrick Wilson's house. And also, where would this person, where would this person see themselves as living? What would fulfill their sort of literary identity? And so Eileen Landris, our executive producer, was like, I think Upper West Side is where this guy wants to mm -hmm. be. And that building, it was like the just the lobby. Like if you I would be happy to be homeless and just sleep in that lobby. It was the most glamorous place I've ever been. We, we talk a lot. Um, we, and when I say we any anyone who's engaged in in. Uh, television culture, yeah. you know, about wanting to be pushed, wanting the medium to push, to push the medium forward, wanting to be pushed by the medium. Yeah. And I do think there's sort of an intrinsic resistance to, uh, to gray areas, to exploring the parts of human experience and the parts of art that actually are the spoke, the, the express point in maybe more established mediums, you know, yeah. painting or theater, or even I'm curious if you draw a line to independent film. Yeah. Um, this episode leaves us in a very, very gray area. Um, and I'm so grateful for it. But, I, it, but it, But it also strikes me that that's a place that you have been, it's a place you seem, you were comfortable with from the beginning, from your background and what's interesting to you. But the show hasn't always been allowed to linger there in the no. commentary that surrounds it. Well, it's interesting. I've always been comfortable with the idea of 
gray areas and it's gotten me in trouble at times. I mean, every time that I've sort of, you know, every thing that from my book that became scandalous was because I wasn't willing to slap a hyper-specific label on things, whether it was my own sexual assault or whether it was, you know, people's insane, I don't know how anyone comprehended the idea that I, you know, had a sexually inappropriate relationship with my sister, but that's one that will follow me around on Twitter for the rest of my life. Well, Twitter's Um, not a place for gray area. No, Twitter, uh, and we live in this and we kind of say it in this episode, like we live in this crazy 140 characters culture yeah. where you need to have the perfect pronouncement and or nothing at all. Mm-hmm. And so this episode was a chance to really look at the fact that like sometimes it's it's about more than just, you know, a perfect defense. Sometimes it's really about the fact that we are all doing our best to live in we're all doing our best to live through the essential, you know, isolation of being human. And that causes some people to behave pretty badly. But also, like, I've never wanted to deny as a woman the role that I've played. We have a, we talk a lot about not blaming victims. And I'm a huge, I mean, obviously I talk a lot in my sort of life as an activist about um, the way that how can we make women feel more safe to come forward and that's by not blaming them for Mm -hmm. their own not blaming women for being assaulted not blaming women for their own victimhood Mm -hmm. that being said there have been a lot of times in my life where I've stepped away from an encounter the thing I always say is like not to get too um personal but you know I've been raped I know what that feels like and I've also had totally unpleasant encounters with men where I've stepped away and known that I played just as much a part in it as they did, even if it left me feeling violated, gross, and sad. I still knew that I was, you know, a, a consenting member of the waltz, and it was something that I had been taught to do by systems larger than myself. And I think that was what this episode was about, was like, is it, it's about something so much less clear-cut, yeah. in which one of the things that women have to live with, in addition to the pain of feeling violated, is the pain of having been... Um, participants in their own violation. Yeah, and and the way you you end the episode, there's an incredible moment. His daughter's playing the flute all of a sudden. Yes, cutest actor, little actor, Caroline. She's the cutest person I've ever met in my life. And I was like, I'm so sorry to put you into an episode (laughs) where your father is a possible sex offender. Possible. His smile, though, and I don't know if this is a directorial note or just something he brought to it. His smile is the only pure thing in the episode. Beautiful. Um, he, he loves this moment. He's alive in this moment. And then, you know, and we should give shout out to the great Richard Shepard who directed the episode. So talented. Cuts to Hannah watching him watch her. And then it becomes something else. And that scene with the flute was actually Richard's idea. That's mm-hmm. how these episodes become what they are is, you know, I may go into a room and write it, but then Jenny has the idea about the gray area. And then Richard goes, how do we really, I think I'd written a different scene in which Hannah's watching him talk to his daughter and goes like, oh shit, this is a man with a child that he really cares about. And Richard was like, no, how can we make this visual? Yeah. And that was his idea. And Matthew had just had a baby. And yeah, right. so, and he was not sleeping, but kind of in that kind of like joyful, glowy, not sleeping place of like, I'm experiencing more love than I've ever experienced before, but I'm. <laughs> I'm essentially high. My body is shutting down. <laughs> my body's shutting down and I'm high and I'm, I've am i yeah. had 11 cups of coffee. So he brought like kind of the knowledge of like a new parent like yeah. the pri- and I could wa- see him not to project too much onto him, but the way he was smiling at 
Caroline, while she played the flute, I felt like it was like, I got chills because I felt like it was like Matthew as a new father mm. really expressing like all the beauty of those sensations. Mm-hmm. And you're right, it was really pure. But, and then, you know, when Hannah leaves the leaves the building and you're almost relieved, she's out of this, tin, this uh, pressure cooker. Yeah. But in that pressure cooker, there were some truths that were starting to bubble up that were yeah. inconsistent, but were still true. The way he acted towards women, the way he acted towards his daughter, the way he acted towards Hannah. Out in the world, 100 more women are walking in, which is a beautiful yeah. shot. And another Richard Shepard special. And there's well, there's a sense of like, oh, thank God we're out here. But then you're back out there. You're back on the battlefield. You're back uh, on the battlefield and you sort of realize, I mean, that was Richard's idea, which is we don't do super stylized shots very often mm-hmm. or sort of that had an almost magical realism element to it, which yeah. is like and the and the game just continues on, you right. know, and yeah. my thing was I was like that Rihanna song was really important to me because yeah. if you listen, sometimes it's hard to tell what Rihanna's saying because of her <laughs> sexy, throaty. <laughs> yeah voice, although she is my favorite musical artist of our time. But that song is about, Desperado is about two people. There's a line in it where she goes like, you and I have common interests. It's about two people who make the choice to align themselves sort of in a kind of love slash criminal relationship because Mm -hmm. they know they're both getting something out of it, even when it hurts. And so that was why I remember Judd being like, why are you using this Rihanna song? And I was like, no, read the lyrics really carefully. Like, it's the story of two people making a decision mm-hmm. to kind of like ride off into the sunset together, not out of love, but because like, you know, they both are getting something out of the equation. Hey guys, just want to tell you a little bit about the podcast on Channel 33. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Achievement Oriented, the Ringer's gaming podcast hosted by our buddies Ben Lindbergh and the god Jason Concepcion, the maester. You can listen to new episodes every Friday by subscribing to the Channel 33 podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your pods.